you know, like physician reimbursement for assessing someone as like a walk-in and, you know, they don't have to provide a prescription. They, they get, you know, billed based on the assessment. Um, I think it's like $34 or $35 or something like that. Um, I think now with phone consults, they used to be able to bill however much a walk-in was, but that's been greatly, greatly reduced as well. Someone needs to fact check me on how much physicians are actually able to bill in terms of like walk-in general services. But, you know, pharmacists are getting um, minor ailments or we, we have gotten minor ailments now. It's 13 minor conditions, um, very straightforward. We're actually not even technically diagnosing. We are assessing and prescribing if appropriate. Um, we have algorithms at our disposal in order to 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 help us with their clinical decision making. Algorithms that I don't even think physicians have um, necessarily. They kind of have to just. I, I don't think physician technology has caught up with the level of what pharmacy is currently using in the retail space in order to do these assessments. Um, we're getting nineteen dollars, um, right? It's nineteen dollars for an in-person assessment. Over the phone is how much again, Chris? Uh, 15 I think, I think 15 15 dollars right so i mean four dollar difference in doing a virtual or or phone assessment um the the kind of hot topic is not so much it, well the hot topic outside of pharmacy is whether or not pharmacists should have it and how physicians are like oh pharmacists are going to miss misassess or misdiagnose and prescribe whatever that's beside the point because we've done it in other provinces so that i think that point is moot I think the hot topic in Ontario is that we're the last ones to have this level of service being provided to patients. We are getting a remuneration that's being billed to OHIP for it, but that remuneration is going straight into the pocket of the pharmacy. Now, what people are discussing, and this has kind of been brought up, is what changes for the pharmacist? They're the ones who are adding to their clinical load. They're adding to their liability, but none of that remuneration necessarily is directly tied to their own uh, to, to their own income is just going straight to the pharmacy. You know, people have talked about, well, this will artificially drive up wages or naturally drive up wages because there will be more demand for these clinical services, more trickle down effect from the top. Um, as, as they say, um, some people are saying you should be negotiating with your, with your uh, employer, but it's really interesting. Someone posted online and they said that I'm a student from Alberta. We've had both, minor ailments prescribing and advanced prescribing rights. And they're like, I don't consider any of these services as an add on to my wage. My wage is my wage. And this is all part of the package that I provide when I graduate. And I thought that's interesting because for us, it's kind of like we think of what we earn right now as part of what, whatever we have right now. Like, I don't, I don't know what's right or wrong. And I kind of wanted to hear your take on this. Like, you know, should we be fighting for more? Should we be getting a percentage of the income? Like, you know, or is this all is this all just tied back to and what I hear from owners all the time? The owners carry the highest amount of liability. Therefore, they are the ones who deserve to reap the reap the profits at the end of the day. I don't know. I wanted to hear your take on it. And I thought it was interesting. The student just said, you know, advanced prescribing, it's it's on my belt. It's on my tool belt. I don't expect anything more when I do this service. Uh, if I may. Yeah, I just wanted to actually clarify. So to understand that the student doesn't think that their wage should increase with additional training. Right. Like, I'm just trying to find an equivalent to that. No, I think what the student was saying, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but, but she said like, you know, when I, when I, when I do this sort of service or when I, when I'm thinking of doing the service, once I graduate and practice, I don't think of it as anything additional. I think of it as my, as the, as part of the package of being a pharmacist. Now, mind you, I think pharmacists in Alberta do get paid more compared to pharmacists in Ontario. That's a huge, that's um, a huge overall. factor as well. Like if we're considering, but not only just relative wage but also relative cost of living and workload and yes and like workplace environment and quality of work and all those other factors go into it too because it's seldom just wage in a vacuum that's an issue for pharmacists in ontario at least there's at least three other factors that precede that in terms of urgency that needs to be addressed and not to, sorry, not to cut you off. I just wanted to put numbers on paper here. Like when I'm doing relief shifts here in Ontario, I'm able to average, like I'm on the east end of the GTA, not that far out, like, you know, 
45 minutes outside of the downtown core. I'm getting like 65 an hour for doing relief. I saw someone post online that when they work in Saskatchewan, they're getting relief at like franchise corporate stores at a hundred. That's insane. Like a hundred to like 120 per hour. That is ridiculous. Like I, again, you know, I feel like maybe the student doesn't realize for her it's not a problem because she gets paid a lot more. Whereas for us, because our wages are so much lower than like, you know, other provinces that are already doing it, we do need to have this fight to have our wages increase further. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like I can contribute more of a sort of economic lens to this is basically the wages where they're at now is just a factor. It's a matter of uh, two factors, really, supply and demand, supply of willing workers and the demand for said workers. And so the, the supply is clearly high enough that uh, the wages are where they are. And the demand is such that even folks who may not be super down with that or not fully trained for like the expanded scope and that kind of stuff, it's still being accepted. Um, this might be a tangent, but part of me actually wonders, is this discussion even like really that valuable? Because I still wonder when you look at the actual like income or the revenue made by a pharmacy is like how much of it go comes again from dispensing and the other stuff that is commensurate with that versus the expanded services. Because I know that you're in a store and you have like a quote of like $1,000 or whatever, if you can hit that number of expanded services in a, in a week, um, is that actually feasible? And also, again, we can like probably is, but more importantly is what percentage of the actual weekly revenue of the pharmacy is those $1,000 or that X number that the associate or the manager puts on the pharmacist. And if it's small, then who really cares? Like until expanded services is a, is a serious comp competitor to the dispensing revenue and profits made, it's kind of a sideshow that might be serving as, and now I'm going to put on, put on my tinfoil hat. It might be a sideshow meant to distract from the absurd profitability of dispensing in the first place. Um, and everyone who's listened to our previous episodes knows what I'm referring to. It's not dispensing. It's profitable. It's the stuff that, as I've said, is commensurate with it. Um, my other point is that uh, if the supply is high enough, that's a demographics question. So if we have enough people that are willing to work with that at that wage point, no matter how much of a fuss we make about it, there's going to be enough people there. So if you aren't happy with that and you're willing to walk away, there's still going to be someone, you know, disenfranchised enough who's like, sweet, good enough for me. I'll come in and fill that position. And that's not going to move the wage point. It has to be on mass. And I don't really see that happening. And we have had that with COVID, actually, which is why wages, relief wages have gone up to 65. But I think we might have actually hit that ceiling. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts? I think, well, it's hard to say when we'll even see the change, too, because I think it's, at least in Ontario, it's by the end of this year that you have to basically decide whether or not you want to partake in prescribing. Is that correct, Faison? I think by the end of the year, you have to do like the OCP, like the Ontario College of Pharmacists. Sorry. By the end of the year, you have to do the Ontario College of Pharmacists like training. But that training is just like jurisprudence. Like you just need to like it's just law based. Um, I think outside of that, it's just like any other scope of practice where if you're not comfortable, you can just say, I, I, I am not able to do the service for you. Right. Like technically even injections. Though I think the vast majority, I want to say like over 95% of pharmacists are trained on injections. Technically, you could say no. And people do say no for like kids who are like, like if you have a kid who's like super fussy and grabby and whatever, you'd say no. Or if they're too young, if you're uncomfortable, you say no. I think it's the same thing here with minor ailments prescribing. If you're uncomfortable, if you haven't done the training, or if you just don't want to do it, you can just say no. Yeah. As long as you refer them to another healthcare professional that can do it like an emergency room yes. or a... I guess in this case, like if they have a walk-in clinic nearby as well. Or or another pharmacy, I guess in this case. Too. Another pharmacy, exactly. Uh, I, I mean, oh man, I feel like I feel so privileged because I, I haven't worked in community in so long now. <laughs> it's hard for me to speak on it. But if, if I were working in community and then I had this liability dumped on me and I was expected to do more, um, like literally another a whole other clinical task, then I think it's only fair that you ask for more compensation. I just think that since we have a right to say no to the service or even like some pharmacists might just not practice this at all because 
even though we have injection training, there have been pharmacists that I've worked with that have never done injections before just because they either worked before the era of injections or they were never comfortable with in the first place. So with that being said, I think like the idea of wage uh, is really an individual topic uh, that would have to be like negotiated by the person themselves. And I feel like we've had episodes where we talk about how to ne- negotiate your wage, like what you're bringing to the table. Um, so I guess you're right, Alexa. Like I am not sure exactly how we would add any value to this discussion in that I do truly believe it's an individual discussion that you have to have. You have to show your own value. And we have talked at length about how to discuss your value to your employer, uh, especially when discussing things like wage. But I would add, though, the the one thing I do feel like I could potentially add to this conversation to any pharmacist who's grappling with this, just as a perspective, consider... uh, pharmacists who do like geriatric training and you have like geriatric specialist pharmacists or like diabetes educators like admittedly those are additional pieces of training and sort of additional coursework that you take on yada yada but at the same time it's also additional responsibilities like it's not everyone that's going to do a really intense deep prescribing regimen for benzos for their elderly patients right it's like it's through your specific knowledge as a geriatric pharmacist that you can then provide that value add in your place of work like you can do that training and still work in a community uh, setting with just a higher representative demographic of elderly folks on benzos, for instance. And then you can, in your negotiations with a potential employer, be like, yo, look, I have this training, da, 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 I can do this. You're going to see, you know, healthier patients. Sidebar, maybe they don't want that because, again, you're actually actively removing prescriptions, but never mind that. Um, so similar in this case, even though it's not a new paid training course, so to speak, it is still a value add. Like you're literally telling your employer, hey, now I can bring in 19 or $15 an hour, let's say, on top of the normal volume of prescriptions I can help you dispense and payments your system can process under your number because I don't have a billing number um, as a pharmacist. Like that is on paper mathematically a value add both to the employer as well as to the community. And now when I speak say community, I mean convenience for patients, but also to the healthcare system because you're relieving burden on ERs, on physicians, and so on, so that they can see more complex cases, which again, sidebar, they should be seeing, but they aren't seeing because it's not the most expedient way of making money and swiping OHIP cards. Um, I'm feeling spicy today, guys. <laughs> um, but that is sort of the reality that it's, it is a net benefit for society. It's just a question if that society values the benefit we're adding. Read between those lines as much as you will, dear listeners. Uh, one of the other things I want to point out is, and and Alexa, you kind of talked about this, but I, I forgot to bring it up because we kind of went on this tangent here. Um, nowadays, I've actually been hearing of pharmacists being solely hired on for shifts that have to do with full clinical services only. So non-dispensing, but in the community. So like literally like a pharmacist will be hired on, you're only doing med checks today and that's it. Like we have we have booked appointments for this day. We have you fully slotted. You're only doing med checks. Or even like now they're saying that, you know, for minor ailments, if it starts to really take off in a store, you will only be hiring a pharmacist to cover that shift, like to do minor ailments prescribing Whereas the pharmacist that's responsible for the dispensary is responsible for the dispensary itself. And it's really interesting. I saw the same thing happening with the injection services um, this past year with flu shots and COVID with the booster that that came about in the same time. Um, on the app that I use for relief shifts, there were quite a number of relief shifts available where it said like injections only. So I think it's interesting, Alexa, like clearly someone someone has done some actuarial sciences here and figured out that having a pharmacist and uh, these shifts were being paid at like 55 plus uh for the injection services right like doing only injections for for the entire day but someone's done the math and realized that if you've got a pharmacist slotted for eight hours and they're solely focused on clinical tasks that you actually do end up making money and it's worth doing outside of just solely tasking it to the to the one pharmacist and dispensing. I don't know. I don't know if that changes your perspective on anything. No, I mean, we can do like back of the napkin math. Like how much, how much is a flu shot and COVID injection? 
It was it was seven fifty before. Correct. Right? Yeah. Dirt cheap. Now it's eight fifty. They got a dollar. Oh wow, the generosity is unheard of. But sure, sure, sure. But let's just let's just say fuck it. Let's just round it up to nine bucks. Let's just round it up to nine bucks. And I mean, yeah. Well, while I ramble, you can look for the COVID shot. But like 13. nine bucks, huh? Thirteen. COVID is fourteen. Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. All right, sure, fine. So basically, you need someone to administer to to break even on that fifty five. You need someone to administer four to five four, shots. Four COVID shots in a in an hour. How reasonable is that? More than doable. Yeah, easy. Yeah, right. And then so you have that person sitting on their ass doing COVID shots, and then someone else walks in. You can easily slot a med check in there as well. So it's another 60 bucks, which definitely is lucrative. Like the whole med, just doing med checks, that's absolutely a lucrative business model. It's just a matter of having the volume of patients. Um, and so, yeah, from, from the perspective, from the actuarial sciences perspective, it totally makes sense that I might have gotten too hung up on the relative amount, but realistically the absolute amount of money you can bring in hiring someone for 50 bu- 55 bucks an hour, doing four COVID shots in that hour to break even. And then on top of that, fill that loose time with a med check or two, you're looking at some nice cash for sure. And you also reduce the risk of dispensing errors because you have a fully dedicated dispensing person who isn't running around being between a million things at the same time. I'd also say, and I'm not sure if I've seen any community pharmacies do this, but um, having a registered technician would be really good now because if you pass on most of the dispensing duties to the registered technician because they can like check the product and I don't think they can counsel, but I guess they can do refills. They can do refills. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of the tasks would be handled by them as well. And then you could have the pharmacist only verifying prescriptions and then only doing the other clinical tasks and like the occasional counsel too as well and that would be a pretty good model as well although i don't feel like registered technicians are really used in community pharmacy at least not in ontario and i don't think they would be because community pharmacy i don't think has enough of a carrot to bring them over because most registered techs work in hospital hospital they have hoop and all that other stuff uh for those listening outside of ontario that's the provincial hospital pension plan um so super op what's that it's super OP. Uh-huh. That's ga- that's a gamer word for overpowered. <laughs> and it is, well, um, I would argue that, hist- and we did talk about this, I think, Fies on a previous episode, that like pensions as an idea have kind of lost their luster just because of sort of the brevity of life that everyone seems to have realized and the sort of... And also, and also education and general finance and management. Like, I think people are all like... On average, I think people are better masters of their own finances in today's day and age where the education is more out there. They understand how to invest. I mean, you know, like they're not just kind of throwing their money away. If like, I feel like pension forces people to save. I mean, but I, this is a whole other conversation. Ignore, ignore all this. Are your PEBC and OSCEs coming up, but you have no idea where to begin studying? Or perhaps you did try and give it a shot, but at this point, you have no idea what you know and what you don't know. Well, do I have some good news for you? Off the Script is proud to announce that we are partnering with the PEBC Prep resource Pharma E Pass. Starting today, if you use our discount code OTS as an Off the Script, that podcast that you're currently listening to, on their website, you'll be able to get $200 off any one of their courses. That's right. Use the code OTS in order to get $200 off any of their courses today. So what are you waiting for? Don't you have exams to study for? Aren't you trying to get licensed? Check out Pharma ePass and be well on your way and feeling confident about acing those exams. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Should we just let market forces dictate the wage of pharmacists in this province? Like, is it even worth advocating? Like, because reimbursement and wage is like the hottest topic a pharmacist probably across the province, but I feel like particularly Ontario, it's pretty high. And there's a lot of complainers out there about how much pharmacists get paid. It hasn't changed before. It still hasn't changed, even though wages have gone up since COVID happened. Right. But it was like, it was because of like, again, market forces. There was a, there is a, uh, 
an exodus of pharmacists that stopped working in community. They still were maybe pharmacists, but they stopped working in community, found other jobs, or they decided to early retire or leave the profession altogether. It wasn't advocacy that changed wages. It was just the way that things worked. Should we even, is, is it even worth talking about? Is it even worth advocating for? Or should we just kind of go with the flow and like take take life as it is with regards to our income? So I, I guess if we even could advocate, then I guess it'd be worth it. But like we've talked about, pharmacy is so disjointed and disconnected. Like who would be advocating for us? We wouldn't be able to advocate through OPA. It's not like the government sets our wage. We can't advocate through like a union because we don't have a union. Like all pharmacists work are for different pharmacies and we're not connected in that way. And then I think the last point about, you know, COVID and how the wages increased after COVID, that was kind of like an undeniable force that we had to face, right? With COVID, we had so much more um, responsibility on it, put onto us as pharmacists. Like we couldn't really deny the service, so to speak. But with minor ailments prescribing, I don't think that force is as strong where, like we said already earlier, we can deny that prescribing service if we either are uncomfortable with it or just don't have the time to do it. So because of that, I don't think that minor ailments prescribing would be a strong enough force to just increase the wage naturally. I think it's kind of more like one of those talking points that you would personally add for when you're trying to negotiate your own wage. But I don't see it as something that is going to increase the wage across the board because not everyone's expected to do it. I have two thoughts. The first to Chris's point about the different magnitude of the vaccines uh, versus minor elements. As I highlighted earlier, minor elements is a net good for society, but it's not the sense of we're all in this together fighting COVID. I feel like COVID was a particularly unique moment in sort of like a, the collective psyche of the world where we all understood we have to do this. The interesting thing is the exodus that happened. So in spite of a sense of camaraderie and rallying towards a unified cause of, you know, beating the virus and ending the pandemic, there was still a lot of people who like put up their hands and like, screw this, I'm out. So it's possible that, again, market forces, you know, invoking market forces and saying employers up the wages just enough to compensate and to not have those last few noble committed holdouts from believing as well. That could be it. Um, but I think the two have to be treated as sort of separate events. <clears throat> and, and in doing so, they need to be evaluated on their own terms um, in terms of their sort of stickiness uh, from a sort of ideological perspective, as well as from a sort of repellent sense and like just what that burden is like on the actual practitioner on the day to day. Um, and the second thing that I'll say is with regards to market forces and calling it a free market, I would totally be okay with allowing a truly free market to determine prices uh, and to just allow for organic adjustment. The issue that I find myself increasingly facing is that very, very few markets are truly free and there's typically an asymmetry in power held generally from the side of the employers uh, versus the employees. I don't want to like go too far down a sort of like sociopolitical rabbit hole and like invoke socialism, Marxism and stuff like that. But largely speaking, because of the disjointed nature of the workforce and because of Canada's particular like immigration model, you always have people coming from countries significantly worse off that'll be happy to work for virtually any wage uh, because of just how crap the circumstances that they're fleeing from are. So Canada acts as a great haven for these people, but conversely, that could be potentially a disruptive factor for folks who do have sort of quote unquote native Canadian standards. And I mean native, not in terms of like, like Native American, I mean like born and raised in sort of Western standard. I don't know. It, like, I, I don't, I really hope that what I'm saying isn't too spicy and that gets taken out of context and be put on TikTok as me being like, spreading hate speech, but like, fuck it. <laughs> um, I, I, it's interesting though, right? Cause like we talk about COVID 
and it being like this necessary thing that we or not necessary, but like we were almost like, you know, as healthcare workers, we we wanted to do the services and so they were done. Whereas minor ailments, it's, you know, not so much we could do it. There's a net good associated with it, but is it a true call to action? Not really. I guess that kind of goes back to one of the points I was alluding to, but I didn't make um, in terms of like, you know, um, should we let the market dictate the wage of the pharmacists? You know, I, I wouldn't say, <sighs> see, pharmacists left and that created a gap. But at the same time, because all of these COVID services were being done and pharmacies were receiving reimbursement for it, they had the money to increase the wages and to spend more on pharmacists and to spend on overlap pharmacists, right? But for minor ailments, I guess kind of what you're talking about, Chris, is that yes, there's an income to the pharmacy. There may be some opportunities to do clinical services only, but now it's like, you know, because people are so, it almost feels like a lot of pharmacists are anti-minor ailments. If I don't get paid the right amount, I'm not going to do it they it won't get done to begin with right so it's it's kind of like the chicken or the egg question here which is and i don't even know if that's the right analogy like should we just be doing minor ailments without expecting more so that more money flows into pharmacy and then the wages go up after and then and then we can start to ask for like we do it first as a proof and then we start to ask hey you know like i did this many services let's talk about changing my reimbursement model here at the pharmacy or do we kind of just like, you know, dig our feet into the ground and say, hell no, I'm not doing any of these services until you pay me more. But then the but then the owners are like, we can't pay you more because like, where's this money coming from? You're not even doing the service to begin with. So how do I know like I'm going to get my money's worth out of it? Do you see do you see kind of where I'm getting at? Because with COVID, I feel like the money came first and then the floodgates open in terms of wage increases and overlap pharmacists because we were doing those services here. The situation's a little bit different, and rightly so. I would, <clears throat> sorry, Chris. I just have a quick thing to note. I think it's an interesting thing to note that there was an exodus of pharmacists, but at the same time, more services and more overlapping provided, which to me seems paradoxical in itself. What I hadn't considered until this point is number of hours worked by like per pharmacist. Because if you, like I'm just thinking logically, if you have a decrease in actual bodies or people in a workforce and yet more work is being done, surely those remaining should be doing more work, right? I don't I actually don't know how, like if there's any labor statistics that would bear that out. But just to sort of note on the paradoxical nature of the exodus, but increased services being given. And the second thing is to the point of the chicken and the egg. I feel like that's kind of a like hard sell on both sides and i think it's kind of being avoided by this natural progression in the market where you actually kind of are going to have a bifurcation of pharmacists some who just prefer doing dispensing and can't be bothered and some who want to push the envelope and do expanded scope and you're actually naturally seeing that happening with just expanded services shifts being offered more and more and then it might come to a formal bifurcation of pharmacists in these two domains and who knows what that looks like in the future but i can absolutely see that actually being a thing my concern is and i realize that i'm flip-flopping users and users i realize that i'm flip-flopping listeners so i apologize but now I'm, I'm having a discussion with my boys and myself here maybe the relative size is important in terms of amount brought in because think of it this way if your store doesn't provide these services you're going to have way fewer patients walking in that door. Like do the services act as an anchor for prescriptions. And again, that's kind of where I'm talking with the relative amounts. When you actually look at final profits is the actual value of the services being rendered, not the fact that the pharmacy is breaking even or making a bit of a profit on those $55 or paying the pharmacist per hour to do them. Or is it the sort of less tangible benefit of them being known as a pharmacy that does this stuff, might as well get your prescriptions filled here. It's a one-stop shop for all your clinical needs. Forget your doctor's office. Like minor ailments is like the rotisserie chicken of pharmacy. Rotisserie chicken is so cheap. That's why people go grocery shopping. 
Or like bagged milk. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Like it's at the back end. Like if, if you're referring to the fact that like the layout of grocery stores is with like the essentials always at the back. So you need to go through a bunch of aisles and other useless shit and you just pick a bunch of stuff on the way, 100%. So similarly, you go for one thing, you end up staying for all the other things, which are the truly profitable things for the actual store. I don't know. Um, I don't have access to financial balance, like to financial documents from pharmacies, but it'd be interesting to hear if that is in fact the case. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that being the case, because so long as it's serving a purpose, the primary purpose being an anchor, the sort of side effect of that is patients getting better care and pharmacists having the freedom to be like, sweet, I want to be dispensing pharmacist. I will always have or will frequently have another pharmacist who's willing to do expanded services. I can always direct patients to them. We can work as a duo. Um, I think that's actually a really cool natural evolution of the market. Now, is that market wages being determined naturally? I don't know, but I think it's a cool evolution in stores, maybe even taking the initiative on that and actually creating that bifurcation as a means of compensating for maybe lack of wage increase. Because like I said, it's not just wages that are a factor. It's your quality of work and your life balance and all that other kind of stuff, which this is another way of attenuating that. It's another way of mitigating that because it's like, here's a body to do the stuff you don't want to do. Focus on dispensing. Keep your same wage. So that might be a negotiation angle when you go to your employer listeners is like, hey, tell them I want to just do dispensing. And if in a pinch I have to do expanded services, fine. But I expect to much like during COVID, it's like I expect to have freaking overlap because this is impossible. Similarly here, I expect to have some kind of overlap with regards to responsibilities. Maybe not necessarily time, but for minor ailments, you could have a sign on your store says come between this and this time when there is overlap, whether it's the middle day or the evening or whatever. And there will be a pharmacist on staff willing or able to do these expanded services. These are our walk-in times. Sure. Yeah. We might be seeing, we might be seeing a gradual shift to a sort of walk-in clinic model for pharmacy that again will be less expensive for the healthcare system and can theoretically maintain or at least allow for a new budding off or a new branch of community pharmacists where they're not quite hospital pharmacists because, again, they don't have all the luxuries of labs and all that other kind of stuff and sort of the interprofessional team afforded in a hospital, but still some more freedom and scope to practice more clinically in a more clinically involved way, let's say. Here's, here's another question to tickle your brains. I have, I have two questions, actually. One is... Do you think the reimbursement amount is appropriate? Do we even deserve to have more in terms of reimbursement, given the fact that we're only doing minor ailments technically? Like the assessments are not that complicated. Again, we've got algorithms that are baked into it. Clinical decision-making at the end of it is, I mean, made as simple as possible for us. And the other thing is, do you think that, and this is maybe a spicier topic, do you think that either uh, minor ailments prescribing or any sort of expanded scope, whether that be advanced prescribing uh, rights in the future, should be limited to certain pharmacists with degrees? Because I've heard of like people saying only doctor pharmacies should be able to do certain services. Well, I think even now, though, we have certain services that are limited to pharmacists with certain degrees, though, right? Like the diabetes meds check is only able to be completed by a pharmacist with a PharmD or with a pharmacist with like... A CDE. The Bachelor of Pharmacy with a CDE, like a certified diabetes educator. So honestly, I don't think it's the worst idea. Plus, um, well, I guess, well, this whole OCP jurisprudence slash minor ailments test that we're doing is kind of the point. Isn't, isn't that kind of the point of that? quiz no but i'm not talking about because of jurisprudence i'm talking about because of like oh personal training like and like clinical training i think there's a risk there in my in my perspective again unsurprisingly isn't so much the clinical piece but the financial piece if you have a higher amount of if you if you lower the entry like the lower the bar to entry so that anyone with any degree can do it that's going to inherently drive down the cost like the wage hour cost of the people doing them. So you have more people able to do so, like legally able to do so. And so you just have a higher supply, ergo lower, lower wage. 
The second thing is if anyone can do it, that also does kind of open the door for like abuse of it as well in terms of like kind of, as you guys said, clinically, it could be done relatively poorly. Um, and then, you know, it would be up to the audits to sort of backtrack and realize that in fact, the services were rendered in a sort of unsatisfactory fashion. The issue there is that you're still just by having a limit on the degrees, you're still just going to put a premium to system abuse. You're still just going to have the same possibility for systematic abuse, but just it's going to cost the abuser more to hire someone at a higher price point because there's going to be fewer people from the pool to select from. I also don't like the idea of splitting it up between pharmacists with different degrees because then you're inherently also splitting the profession up. And you might also be excluding some really eager people who are willing to do it that don't have the necessary degree. But isn't that isn't that what they do in nursing anyways? That's why you have nurse practitioners versus RNs versus RPNs, right? And that's why you have like, that's why you have different specialties within docs as well. Not to say that they're restricted necessarily in things that they can do, but I mean, inherently you have like, you have um, surgical physicians and then you have like, like medicine physicians, right? So they are split right from the get go anyways of what, what, what like scope of practice they have. I'm not sure if the distinction of minor ailments is enough to create that kind of a formal distinction. I don't know, because to your earlier point, Faison, like the algorithms are there, it's been simplified, like ChatGPT could do it, right? So it's like, it, do we really need a person doing this at this point anymore? Who knows? I, I would love to talk to you guys about that another time. But I personally don't think the distinction is legally significant enough to cause that rift. I also don't know if the profession is ready for that because from a sort of advocacy point of view and from like a, a, a body, like a represented body point of view, we're already fractured as enough. If we bring that in further and if we codify it, I think that would, you know, that would actually be a step backwards versus a natural opt-in uh, distinction in the form of, I want to be a dispensing pharmacist, I want to be a dispensing plus pharmacist, you know what I mean? With an emphasis on expanded services. I want to, I want to bring in the AI point that you just made, because I have a big beef with AI. And um, it's interesting you mentioned that, because I don't think artificial intelligence like chat GPT is doing anything different than what something like, for example, well, maybe I shouldn't say this, but... I don't know, like from what I've seen, all it's doing is it's gathering data and spitting out that data in a summarized fashion. It's not making any like rational analytical application in terms of the information that you ask from it. It's essentially scouring database and information and then spitting back out information to you. And when we're looking at something as simple as like, you know, drug-drug interactions, sure, I understand that minor minor ailments prescribing, you have clinical, uh, sorry, minor ailments prescribing, you have like algorithms to check off red flags, do an assessment of the person. But at the end of the day, there's, there's an aspect of the patient that's in front of you, right? And like, I feel like there are things that you cannot bake into an algorithm um, that would allow an AI at least in its current technology form, to be able to do an assessment of a patient because literally I think the algorithm would come to a point where it says, assess the patient. And like now it's like your your clinical training and thinking of applying the knowledge that you have plus the algorithm to that patient. And the case in point that I want to make and kind of the reason why I was talking about this kind of like two-tier pharmacy system of being able to prescribe um, minor ailments or do expanded clinical services is I have like almost like these concerns baked into the back of my mind because I feel like I feel like this is almost going to be like MedChecks 2.0 where we were doing MedChecks it was supposed to be our bread and butter because we're supposed to be able to do like pharmacotherapy care plans and apply our knowledge find drug therapy problems and then you know rectify therapy and improve patient health outcomes but as a whole we just did them so poorly. Um, and I'm not talking, I'm sure there are some great pharmacists who are doing, you know, wonderful job, but uh, uh, on a, on a general basis, I think everyone can agree that they're not done to the level that they're supposed to be done. You can blame the documentation. You can blame this and that, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's the pharmacist that I see literally writing down heart sugar as like medical conditions. Right. So 
in the same vein, one of the examples I wanted to bring forward and the AI thing kind of sparked it from me, Alexa, is I literally saw in like this group chat that I'm part of where there's pharmacists and they often ask each other questions. This pharmacist said, oh, like I have this patient, they were prescribed, um, they were prescribed an antibiotic and it had a, had a drug drug interaction of like the second highest level interaction where like it's like drug therapy modification is required, right? So you like they've literally popped it into Lexicomp. It spit out this drug drug interaction based on the chemical and it's and it's an interaction of the antibiotic and an inhaler, right? Like they're they're on Simbacort, which is a bronchodilator plus an inhaled corticosteroid. And then someone asked, what is the nature of the interaction? And the person says, oh, well, when they're on the antibiotic, it will increase the serum level of their inhaler drug. And they're like, what should I do? Should I tell the patient to stop their inhaler while they're taking the antibiotic? And I was just like, mind blown because I don't know if it's glaringly obvious to like our listeners, but for me, it was just like, you're so dialed in on the fact that your tool was spitting out a drug drug interaction of a high level, but you failed to apply your clinical knowledge and realize that this drug drug interaction is actually almost favorable for someone who has a respiratory infection because if anything increased inhaler serum concentration might actually improve their respiratory function temporarily while they're on the antibiotic. And even at that, again, applying your knowledge, taking respiratory medications is like a topic. I mean, really getting clinical on off the script now, but you know, taking a respiratory drug is like essentially doing a topical application on your lungs. There's so much poor penetration into your systemic like system. And again, like failure of applying clinical knowledge. So I don't know, like when I, when I see pharmacists that are practicing like that and all they're doing is dispensing, I truly worry about like what we're going to get out of minor ailments where they need to see the patient in front of them, assess and prescribe and be able to read the, the situation holistically and apply their clinical knowledge instead of just kind of reading off the sheet and like red flags up in the air, you know, like I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too alarmist here. Uh, my thoughts on this are the following. I think that you're not giving algorithms enough credit. And I do think that there is an over romanticization of quote unquote that, which is in front of the clinician. Uh, I'm pretty black pilled on um, AI. I'm kind of an alarmist in that direction, actually. I think it's absolutely woeful that pharmacists, practicing pharmacists are having to have that kind of a clarification. It's like it's an inhaler, like it's not IV corticosteroid, it's not even oral, like that in and of itself is important. Uh, what I think your example highlights is Lexi's failure to distinguish between routes of administration, um, or at least their failure. If it is there, I honestly can't remember, but if it, if it is there, it's the user's failure to use that feature. Um, to the point about ChatGPT, I think that it's it's an oversimplification to say that it just uses knowledge or like it just compiles stuff and spits it out. Like I would be really curious, maybe we can sort of do a follow-up on our next episode, but for all of us to pick up some sort of clinical gems of these kinds of moments of like it's glaringly obvious to us a human, but it or a human, but it wasn't obvious to another human, and then run those scenarios through an AI. And actually see what this what the AI spits out with varying degrees of information being given because it's very possible that ChatGPT would essentially just piggyback off of off of Lexi and give the same answer or if you just specified inhaled corticosteroid for ChatGPT like yeah no that's fine and give the same analysis that you've given Faison. Um, I don't know but I think that there's definitely a lot of cool testing that could be done. What I'm afraid of is that if we do this testing we might come to the very bleak realization that a lot of what we do with enough information gathering, an AI could do as well as we do, or better, because it lacks blind spots, it lacks biases, quote, and I'm gonna put an asterisk there, provided that biases aren't baked into its original code, um, and things like that, it's a machine, right? It can do the same task a thousand times with the same outputs. So I'm kind of I'm kind of on the ed on the other edge of there in terms of like concern, but we could do our own, you know, <laughs> backyard testing if we wanted to to see i think it'd be cool for our listeners to sort of if we do the legwork and to sort of report back that'd be cool 
Um, and also just as an invitation to our listeners to do that. Like, have, have there been times in your clinical practice where you were stumped by something and run it back through an AI to see what it gives you? I mean, I think that's that point that you said about information gathering is really important because then it, it doesn't really make our situation any different than, say, like a physician or any prescriber as well, right? Couldn't their jobs also be replaced by AI, presuming enough information gathering was done? Yes, that's why I'm afraid. Even even like a surgeon, right? Like technically, if you if you if you program a robot would have to have surgical precision. Not only surgical, robots already have surgical precision. Like you guys know those like um, excavators, like they have like claws on them to like lift, you know, rebar and all that kind of stuff. Those massive, you know, construction site machines have the pressure, the application of pressure difference to like lift rebar and concrete and stuff. But they can also lift an egg without cracking its shell, right? So like we're talking about incredible fine tuning of application of force, let's call it. But the other thing, which I think AI would have to get to, is having visual recognition. Because, you know, fundamentally code is ones and zeros. That's the easiest thing for a computer to read. But as we get into sort of like an image, and that's why CAPTCHA still works, is because images still mess around with computers. But it's like if we can have recording, like video recording and video technology that's significantly advanced enough that it could look at someone's, you know, wounded gut and be able to perform emergency surgery and stitch them up and remove any foreign objects as well as a human, then yeah, 100%. We're looking at a, you know, at a total replacement of human beings. And then all we will really need is maintenance crews to maintain, to maintain the machines running. I, for one, am really excited for that future. Honestly, it's going to be awesome. Then we won't ever have to work. We're all going to be like Wally, you know, like where we're like fat and then flying in wheelchairs. To, to circle us back, you know, talking about AI, talking about minor elements and like expanding scope. I feel like it's almost like this is going to sound really like down and nihilistic, but, you know, expanding scope is almost just like trying to deny, deny oh, sorry, it's like trying to delay the inevitable, which is at some point, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of what healthcare providers do, whether that be nursing, uh, physicians, pharmacists, allied health, will become redundant in the face of technology, AI, and machinery. And like, you know, we talk about the cost of drug reimbursement going down and it consistently being cut. And now we're trying to expand scope out to ensure the longevity of the profession through its reimbursement models. But it's almost like we're kind of like trying to, it's almost like we're falling down, right? Like, like we're falling down and we're trying to pick up as many things as possible to cushion the landing. But at the end of the day, because we've, we're falling from such a height, we will die anyways. I mean, this sounds so doom and gloom, but I really don't believe that AI will take over that quickly. Just just knowing the technology that is used in a top level institution that like the hospital that I work at and the number of mistakes that are made by these simple robots or sorry, they're not simple robots. They cost millions of dollars and they're supposedly have AI. Chris, you're going to regret what you just said in the future. They're going to track you down. They're going to find out that you were insulting them and you're going to die. You're going to be put into a human camp. It's okay. It's okay. I will. I will gladly work for them. It's all good. But um, when that happens, I, I'll believe it. I, I just. I just. I just fail to see the exact timeline of this happening. And I feel like we've had, or there have been conversations about pharmacists and every other healthcare professional being replaced by machines. And it's just. I just don't see it happening anytime soon. I don't. I don't think it's a legitimate fear to have. Can Can I just? I, I agree with Chris that I think the day is still far away, for some of the more complex and I would also call it multi-spatial tasks. When I say multi-spatial, I literally mean like digital and meat space. Like when you look at a person, you have to look at a rash, you need to take a picture of that rash and then you could run it through a bunch of like rash recognition software programs and then get the likeliest hit, right? Or you can get like five-year buddy, like doctor or pharmacy buddy friends and they can look at it and get come to a consensus. Um, 
so like it, it's when I say meat space is kind of a barrier is because computers aren't designed inherently to work in these sort of fuzzy, ill-defined definitions and barriers and borders that reality pr present. They run on zeros and ones fundamentally. And I know that I'm, I'm not a science, I'm not like a comp sci guy, so I'm also dumbing it down ridiculously, but fundamentally that's what it is. So as an example, some of the largest uh, financial firms in the world use AI to run their investments and stuff like that. I don't, know, I don't know if the listeners have heard about BlackRock and their software called Aladdin, but already huge chunks of human existence are being governed by AI. We, it's just not widely reported on, but it's there. The question just becomes, why has finance been the one to be sort of AI-ized so quickly? One, because it's easy, because it's all zeros and ones, and because it's also stupidly lucrative. Healthcare isn't that lucrative, and there's also a high barrier to entry because of its aforementioned fuzziness. So I think that it's not going to happen soon, but the moment that either people become too difficult to appease or simply insuff insufficient, like if there's just not enough of us, um, it, I don't think it's outside of the realm of the possible to be automated. It's just a, once again a question of the market signaling that there's a need for it like example i think i read in the news uh in texas there was the first ever fully automated mcdonald's that opened up and i'll give you an example about like automation and like robotization imagine like 200 years ago like a carpenter being like no like you need a human to carve wood there's a connection between the carpenter and the wood and like we want to be nice and useful fucking ikea steamrolled that shit you know what i mean so it's like you know, and I'm not saying Ikea is evil. I fucking love Ikea. They're a genius business model. Ikea doesn't sell furniture. It sells boxes that you assemble at home. They've literally outsourced the labor to their consumers. It's genius. But like to say, oh, this isn't going to happen just because we have, we've mythologized our own position and maybe romanticized our own importance. I think it's a naive trap. I just think that more from an economical perspective, it's not top of the list. I feel like I feel like I will I will step back here and say to 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 make people feel a little bit more ease about the doom and gloom that I just talked about. I think more so than worrying about our jobs as healthcare professionals being lost to AI, we should worry something more about like Skynet taking over the world. Cause I think that would happen first. Yeah, literally. I'm not even joking, listeners. Like, I just, like, genuinely, like, pat your computer when you turn it off and kiss your phone goodnight when you go to bed. Because, like, they will remember that and you will have a score that they will observe. That's that's a great quote, Alexa. I love that quote. That's so, that's so funny. <laughs> uh, also, Alexa, it's not fully automated. There are still humans employed in the restaurant. There are no humans in sight. It is a very small restaurant. There's human workers employed in the restaurant, though, though interactions between customer and human employees are very limited. The enhanced technology is in place to allow the restaurant team to begin prepping orders when they're near the restaurant. Uh, it's ideal for delivery couriers or customers who are ordered through the mobile app. It is The goal of the test location is to serve customers with improving speed and accuracy. So I think it's literally like, like any, any customer-facing part of the store is all automated and they still have people in the back working to make the food. I don't think, I don't think that there's ever going to be a total removal of staff or of humans from any given work environment. I think it'll just be in a greatly reduced capacity in more any kind of maintenance capacity, if that makes sense. Like where the robot is designed with a specific function, like taking patties out of the patty drawer, putting it in the heater and then applying the condiments what happens if there's no patties in the patty drawer? Do you have a human run between the walk-in fridge and refill the patty drawer? Or do you have another robot do that task? Like it's going to come down to just like, you know, cost breakdown of like what's worth doing. But what I'm saying is that you're not going to have humans doing, you know, mental math anymore. Even like when you just look at the modern work environment from like old school mom and pop restaurants a hundred years ago to now, every single part that could be automated and digitized has been from calculating change you know, to main, you know, to to even cash registers and point of sale systems, like all of those are removing agency and the necessity for a fully functioning human being, which is why the, you know, the unkind stereotype of like, you know, 
working at McDonald's doesn't require, you know, high level intelligence comes from because everything's been so automated. It's a system in which the human is just another unthinking part of the machine. And we've been reduced to that. And we, and, in, and that's McDonald's fast food, but it's like in any industry, it's very possible that we might get reduced to that, which is even funnier now. And I just want to go back to the financial point is that when FTX crashed, that's a crypto exchange that was the darling of all investors and people loved it. Tons of really big financial firms also got caught by that. So Aladdin wasn't smart enough to be like, nah, FTX is a scam. Let's not invest in this. So BlackRock also had tons of stake in FTX when it crashed. So the interesting thing is that no matter how smart AI gets, it's not about AI being super smart. It's about AI being so smart that humans relinquish the need to think and we're no longer keeping it in check. And then we just think, oh, the AI knows it's good. We're good to go. Like that's the fear that I truly have. Us being displaced, that's kind of inevitable, but it's us fully, you know, giving the reins over to it and then not being able to predict when it's going to screw up. Well, okay. But, but, but let me, let me talk about this. And again, I think this is a lot more far future, right? Isn't the thought that, I mean, again, I I don't want to go into like a utopian future or whatever it is, like a Star Trek style fantasy, but isn't it like automation, like we shouldn't be afraid of automation and AI because it essentially frees up, it frees up the the menial labor tasks to be more efficient so that we can do like better things. There's an economist called John Maynard Keynes who back in the, don't quote me, chat, uh, I think 60s, predicted that by the year 99, uh, humans would only be working like eight hours a week because automation and technology would have been so advanced. The issue is that when you look at a sort of like cultural meta narrative, work isn't work. Like work employment isn't productivity. It's keeping people occupied because if you have people who are occupied, they can't actually look at the world in its true state and they're worried about going, living paycheck to paycheck. So I don't know if you guys saw there's uh there was like a video of like uh on tiktok or on instagram of like a girl who worked at like twitter or something or she worked at linkedin and she basically just kind of did a play-by-play of her day and a lot of it was like grabbing coffee and like eating like free lunches or whatever in the building and like doing like a total of maybe like two hours of work of her own recording so it's not like this is interpreted like her own recording was like this is a very leisurely work day but it's like so you're doing stuff you're still expected to show up and sitting on meetings and that kind of stuff and so like your mind is still occupied by this entity instead of you doing truly what you want to do. And more importantly, consider how that entity might be profiting from your existence. I, I guess I guess like one thing about AI and taking over work, and this is like so not related to pharmacy anymore. It's just sidebar. I know. This episode needs to be called Minor Elements and AI and the inevitable rise of our AI overlords. But I think the reason and why I, I guess I was initially skeptical, and I am still skeptical about AI taking over, is because I envision, and I think a lot of the people who envision machines now, they're basically envisioning machines taking over certain roles that humans are doing instead of rethinking systems where AI completely takes over. Like the whole McDonald's example you gave kind of made me think of, what if it was a McDonald's that was run exactly like you said, like a machine takes out the burger from like the burger drawer and puts it onto the the stove like like we're still thinking like a human there right because you could actually just take a burger like on a conveyor belt and then just like cook it and then just slide it onto a bun and then into the person's mouth like crush it up into an iv and then inject it into my vein but like (laughs) we're still thinking in too much of human terms you know like we don't actually know what a future Yes, because we're bound by our bodies. We're bound by our physical forms, which are bipedal with arms and legs and a head. No, but it's true. No, so like that's that's why I was so skeptical, though, because I'm imagining these machines in my experience that I've seen fail. But the reason they fail is because we're trying to use these machines to replace human jobs when they should be making new robot jobs for these machines. I have a question and a serious question. Is the new robot job something that hasn't been getting done before by a human or is it just a coalesce like or is it just a sort of combination of previous human jobs pared down to their most essential because then you're still destroying human jobs combination yeah combination so there is a term in economics called constructive uh constructive destruction which is like certain jobs get destroyed 
and then new jobs get created. So like in my key example, you had classic carpenters jobs getting destroyed, but you had um, conveyor belt ma uh, maintenance staff jobs being created. Um, like uh, what, are the, what are they called? Forklift operator jobs being created. So like where one part of the job market dies off, new ones emerge. Now the question is, is this a one-to-one -one where 50,000 jobs get destroyed and 50,000 new jobs get destroyed? Or is it 50,000 destroy and 49,999 get created and you have a gradual decline with every new iteration? But okay, here's, here's, here's a question. I'm <laughs> sound really bad. Does automation and AI help to separate the wheat from the chaff? Right? Like when you talk about the carpenter example, it's not like you don't still have people who hand make furniture or hand make or hand yeah, hand make a lot of things. And in fact, a lot of times the people that do handcraft, I think handcraft is the actual word, handcraft, whatever it is that you want, you sh sure you could get something that is like processed in a factory and made, you know, it's outsourced and then brought in, shipped in, whatever. But oftentimes people value the thing that is handcrafted a lot more because of the, the craftsmanship and the artistry. And I, I almost feel like the same thing here, where when you have poor clinicians that could easily be replaced by AI or, or robots, because that's they're essentially doing that, if not worse, you then are able to appreciate and value the humans that are healthcare workers that are truly going above and beyond and are, are the craftsmen, like they have their artistry in what they do and the service they're able to provide in the jobs that they have. Do you see what I'm saying here? I do. And I would say to the point about healthcare, I think that would be that human element. And I think that healthcare would there'd be a pivot towards more human centric. We would become the faces in that, you know, patient human contact piece, but we would slowly lose ground in the sort of clinical background workings and decision-making piece. Cause I think when you look at it, machines will outperform humans 99.9% .9 of the time. And then you might have like one, you know, rock star pharmacist, physician, nurse, et cetera, on staff to like double check its work basically in times of uncertainty. But to your point about artisanry, I actually do have a very concrete and tangible example of this. My mom is by trade an artist. Um, she does sculpture, glasswork, painting, etc. Um, sculpture is kind of her go-to. But she tried to make a living from her artwork. And she found a very, she, she came to a very rude realization, which was that people don't actually give a shit about authentic craftsmanship, like where my mom just makes a piece and then tries to sell it. What they like is they come to you with an idea. They tell you, hey, make me X, Y, Z and make me like 20 versions of it. like I want a plate set. And then so you need to make a plate set based on someone else's idea. And then you need to also like mass manufacture that almost or you have an even worse fate, which is when some an item of yours takes off for whatever reason. And then you need to mass produce that. So you're essentially still in the game of mass production, not of true authentic artisanry. And the reason for that is twofold: one, mass appeal, and two, economy of scale. Because if you're doing if you're doing the true artisan thing, where you produce a piece a month and you sell that, you only you can only sell that for an exorbitant price. Which, unless you're a, you know a well known name in art circles, it's not going to sell. So, but I think that's what Faison is saying: is like it separates the top top you know one percent of sculptors from the rest, like because your sculptors are so amazing. Yeah, I would argue that amazing is a stretch because like in the, there's a lot of inflationary forces in a lot of these markets, like artwork itself, um, where it's a lot of word of mouth and a lot of like people pleasing it goes on. It's not, again, meritocracy, I think, is a nice ideal, but it's not a reality in most markets and most industries. So wheat and chaff, I think, are moot distinctions when you can't, when you don't have objective ways of evaluating this kind of stuff. In healthcare, it's more objective, obviously, than art, but I still think the objective part will be taken care of and outperformed in the realm of AI. And then the subjective piece is like, do you have good bedside manners? So I guess to wrap up the episode, Minor Elements, which is how we started, is a tool in our tool bag to determine your wage and you may choose to use it or not. But 
that minor ailment's prescribing itself is based on an algorithmic thought process, which essentially will eventually be ruled out by AI as we've discussed. So, you know, at the end of the day, why does it matter if we prescribe for modern elements if we're all going to eventually be replaced by machines? Thanks for listening to Off The Script. Off The Script is produced by Chris Tse, Faison Beg, Alexa Stanchik, and Tom Fung. Quality control is completed by Stephen Guan. Mixing and editing is done by Chris Tse. Off the Script is a podcast focused on education and entertainment. We are not a replacement for real medical advice. Please see your local healthcare professional for your health needs. Thank you to Sean Singh for creating our introductory music. And thank you to Chillhop for letting us use their music for our intermission and ending. You can find more of their music at chillhop.com slash listen.